0: Um, if you were here last week, then you will know what I mean or you'll understand. Uh, when I say that tonight is just part B, it's kind of the second half of, of what I taught last week. Um, what, what I did last week, just to try to uh, refresh your memory, I, I drew your attention to um, a statement that Paul makes in verse 16 of chapter 6 where he says, and as for all who walk by this rule, it's interesting that he, he, he's calling there the Christian life, this rule. That's the term that he uses to describe the Christian life, this rule. And then I pointed out um, that verse 18, he closes with the statement, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Um, uh, he, he sets those things pretty Very close, almost not side by side, but at least in the same vicinity. For a multiplicity of reasons, we 21st century Christians are uncomfortable when the word rule is associated with the word grace. Um, We think those are mutually exclusive. Apparently, Paul didn't share that opinion, and Paul was not uncomfortable in discussing rules and grace at the same time. Um, I I told you last week that um, back on March the 21st of this year, I used or referred you uh, in the course of my teaching that night to the parable that's contained in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, where the, uh, the landowner, the master, gives uh, five talents, two talents, and one talent. And the, the five-talent guy went out and earned five more, and the two-talent guy went out and earned two more, and then the one-talent guy didn't do anything but bury his. And he makes a statement in verse 24. This is Matthew 25, 24, where he says to the master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be a severe man. And I pointed out that people are very uncomfortable with that term, and they do all kinds of gymnastics to try and, Um, to to get over or to to avoid that word or that statement that is made, that the master is a severe man. The the point of the parable, or at least one of the points of the parable, is that Jesus makes identical statements to the man with five talents and the man with two talents. Um, And and the the point is, it's not that he's so much concerned about the... um, Uh, the profit that's generated, but that he's concerned about one's faithfulness in utilizing their gifts. And then I went on to make this statement back in March that the master has expectations of us, of his people. He has high expectations of us. Having committed certain things to us, he has high expectations as to how those things will be used. And then This, of course, was all last week. Um, And then after I got finished, I had three men, three good men, um, come to me with basically the same question. And they wanted to know how I would square uh, that statement about um, uh, Jesus being a um, a severe man and expectations and, and all that business, how I would square that with grace, And I said to you last week, um, that's an effort that I saw no need to perform because I don't need to square it with grace. It is grace. Those two things go together, folks, rules and grace. As you see here in Galatians 6, they go together. They don't need me to artificially uh, unite them. They're they're already united, and I don't have to um, strain at some kind of theological interpretation to try and say rules and grace can be can be contained in the same mouth in the same sentence. They don't need to be squared, ladies and gentlemen. They're they're um, they're very comfortable side by side, grace and rules. Now that, that's kind of what I was saying last week, and uh, so let, let's let's proceed from there. Guys, um, even in the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament is where where we think of all of that legal living that's uh, that's required, all that legal stuff you know in the Old Testament. But guys, um, when you find statements like these, uh, this is one where, uh, this is Leviticus 18, where it says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. When you find a statement like that, and and there's just dozens of them in in the Old Testament. um, Here's a couple of others. Here's one in Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you. And do them that you may live. Um, Four chapters later in in Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, you get the the same kind of statement. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. Folks, whenever you find statements like that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, when it stresses doing, when it's stressing obedience, it is never... Representing it or using it in any way, shape, form, or fashion as some kind of method by which I might gain entrance into the favor and the kindness and the grace of God. Never, never will you show me that. Never will it be found, folks. But it's always presented in the context of being a right response to God's grace. That
1: Leviticus one. Starts off by saying, I am the Lord your God. The relationship is established. Now you shall therefore keep my statutes and
0: rules. It, it is always pictured and, and portrayed as the right response. To a God who has saved me by sovereign grace. That, that, that grace that, that uh, creates a covenant relationship between the sinner and between God. But that grace that also
1: gives moral instructions.
0: The Old Testament never presents obedience as the way of gaining or earning grace. It, it always is presenting it as a way to enjoy life under God's pleasure um, so that you may enter the land and prosper, the text says. Which, by the way, reminds me of something um, Last week, uh, I, um, I referred you to um, uh, Exodus 15, and I told you the story about Exodus 15. Uh, most of it, uh, seven-eighths of it, is um, uh, the song that Moses wrote uh, after they had uh, crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptian army had been drowned. But then the last little portion of Exodus 15 is they go out three days from, uh, from the Red Sea, and they, they get into a place where there's no sweet water, there's no drinkable water, and the people grumbled, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and, and, and then you get this statement. There, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And I pointed that out last week. That... Um, keeping the rules and, and um, obedience th- th- that God does withholds the, the plagues. And afterwards, Joanne Wood got got a hold of me and, and said, but you didn't say, and she was right. I didn't say it, and I should have. So I'm trying to correct that now. Not only, ladies and gentlemen, uh, does obedience lead to the, the avoidance of the plagues and the diseases, but it's also the way that... Um, that we enjoy the sweetness of the life that God intended us to enjoy. Obedience is the pleasurable life. And, And you know, gang, I hope you remember, rules and statutes never came up while they were in Egypt. But once God
1: bore them out on the eagles' wings, once he separated them to himself, do you know what that's called? That's called grace. Once he had done that, then, not while in Egypt,
0: not while in the bondage, but now, now he calls for them and says that obedience will lead to the pleasurable life, the one where you can enter the land and prosper. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's the way life was intended to be lived. And thus, living according to design works. Life functions better. Just because it's being lived according to the design of the designer. To disobey would bring down the diseases and the plagues that I put on Egypt. But to obey... Is to allow you to enter into the enjoyments and the sweetnesses of the relationship as I intended it to be when I bore you out on eagle's wings. I came and got you. And when I did, I, I had a certain life in mind for my people, which is the one that leads to enjoyments and Pleasure. One other text that I would, I hope will be meaningful to you, and, and, and you can look at it if you like, but it's a text that people tend to memorize a lot. It's a great text. Um, and, and you'll recognize it when I quote it. I mean, I, I've memorized it, and you probably many of you have too. It's in Psalm 130, um, verses 5 and 6. And it goes like this. If you would mark iniquities, who could stand? You remember that one? You know, that's a rhetorical question, ladies and gentlemen. That's when the answer is, is obviously implied in the question.
1: If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? No one. No one could stand. You marked iniquities.
0: And then verse 6 follows and says, But there is forgiveness with thee.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, that's good news. That's the gospel. If you should mark iniquities, you can say it. None of us good No, no, we're all sinful. But there's forgiveness to be had with you. Wow! What a grand piece of news. He doesn't mark iniquities, and he offers
0: forgiveness. But if you memorize those two verses, ladies and gentlemen, you know I'm not done. Because verse 6 goes on. If you should mark iniquities, who could
1: stand? Nobody. But there is forgiveness with thee. Here's the rest. So that. So that I can go out and live any way I want to live. Did that verse say that? So that. I can become comfy cozy with sin so that I can be laissez-faire about my soul. I can live lethargically. I can take gifts that you gave me and I can bury them. Ah, how, how much I enjoy this grace that allows me to live any old way I want. Look at it.
0: If thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. But there's forgiveness with thee. So that you might be feared. That's what the text says. Where's that message, ladies and gentlemen? In an age of grace. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't mean to disparage grace. I love grace. But I love grace. And here it is.
1: For people who are eat up with sin, forgiveness
0: is available. What a message. And once I I have that forgiveness, the intent of getting it, It's so that I might fear him and live my life in obedience to him. Forgiveness,
1: yay! A relationship established by sovereign grace, yay! And the response?
0: Fearing him. That is the proper response. When I have my sin forgiven. Where'd you get that, Jimmy? Oh, from Psalm 130. But that's not what this age of grace is talking about. Oh, no. No, 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 no. In fact, to say what I have just said it's so odd. It's even shrill to 21st century evangelical ears. What? Well, I mean, I thought grace. But I'm, you know, uh, Let me quote it one more time. If thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. But there is forgiveness with thee. Oh, I'm so glad. Forgiveness, so that you might be feared. Is that what forgiveness did to you, ladies and gentlemen? Because if it didn't, you got the wrong forgiveness. The forgiveness that He gives is the forgiveness that produces this view of God that says, I will not toy with sin. I am going to continue to fail you, but that's not going to be my desire. I'm not going to toy with the stuff. Folks, please, I have to say this here because I, I think I'm going to get asked again, how do I square rules with grace? Paul didn't have that problem. David didn't have that problem. Moses didn't have that problem. But we got that problem. Because we've been fed a mushy grace, ladies and gentlemen. It's just mush. So I can go out and sleep with my secretary and steal their credit cards and use credit cards and then say, oh, but you know grace. Yeah, it does, ladies and gentlemen. All those sins are not, none of them are unpardonable. But grace doesn't create in me a sense of being comfy cozy with my sin folks last week and this week this is i hope you understand this is not some call to works righteousness nothing is uglier than works righteousness works righteousness is the most sophisticated of all pagan religions our obedience earns us nothing We are saved by grace, sovereign grace. I showed you last week from Leviticus 20, verse 26, that is so marvelous. It says, "For I have separated you unto myself." That's what God did. He came to Egypt, and he bore him out on eagle's wings and separated you from me, for Himself. That salvation is a gift, ladies and gentlemen. Please don't misunderstand me. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin. And in that sense, the bar for entering salvation is as low as it can possibly get. And yet, today we are being told that we can stay right there at that low entry point in the muck and the mire of our sin. And we call the muck and the mire grace. God have mercy on us. Folks, having been brought by sovereign grace into this saving relationship with God changes me. It changes us, folks. Well, well. how does that work, Jimmy? How does that grace change me <coughs> like this? Having been saved by sovereign grace, receiving a, a forgiveness that I didn't deserve, I then begin to see more and more of what God is like. Wow. Grace expands my vision so that we are drawn away from ourselves to look to the nature and the character of God all over again, continually until we die. Grace is not static. It is an engine that drives me to God. So, seeing more and more of him. So, but but where, where do I see his nature and his character? Well, one place where you see it is in the cross. But let me tell you another place where you see it. In his law. And if I am the first one to read you this text, I'm sorry because the church has failed you. But I'd like for you to hear this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. My dear friend, if obedience to the God who saved you by sovereign grace, if obedience to the God who bore you out on eagle's wings, if obedience to the God who separated you for himself, and he did that at great personal expense to himself, if that God's law is burdensome to you, I question whether you know that God. What is very plain in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 is that being born of God <clears throat> turns the commandments of God from being burdensome to being our delight. Well, how does that work, Doctor? How, how does that happen? okay. Like this. In those laws, I begin to see the nature and the character of God who saved me by sovereign grace. Oh, the beauty of it all. It is ultimately beauty that makes law my delight. What beauty, you ask? Well, how about this? How about this piece of beauty? If thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us. None of us could stand. Nothing none of us would be allowed in his presence. But
1: but I'm being told that there's forgiveness with you. A forgiveness that I didn't earn, I didn't work for, I didn't deserve. And it's the forgiveness that was bought at great personal expense to you. Beauty. Beauty.
0: It's that beauty that turns a burdensome law into a delightful. I hear about the extremes to which God has gone to save someone as undeserving as I. And I say, who is a God like you? You know, you find a question like that in the scriptures several times, who is a god like you? But we don't talk like that anymore. Who is a god like that? Who saves a man that ought to be condemned? Who saves a man who's earned nothing but judgment? who saves the man who, if, if he gets what he deserves, will perish. Who is a God like you? That's beauty. And those rules of yours, those rules of yours that used to be a burden to me and I used to chafe underneath them, They are now my delight. I don't want to lie anymore because I know you're a God of truth. I don't want to commit sexual sin because I know you're a God of purity. I don't want to steal anymore. Because I know that you have promised to care for me for the rest of my life. Oh, that law that used, to, that used to make me angry is a law in which I now delight. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. Love set right next to rules. I don't need to square those. And those commandments are no longer a burden to me. Let me leave you with this. Um, Tucked way in the back of the New Testament is a statement that Peter makes and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking it out of the context in which it's found, but, I mean, you'll remember the words. But he, um, he writes to his audience, he says this, Be sober. Be vigilant. Ladies and gentlemen, I think the 21st century church needs to sober up. And the thing by which she has become intoxicated is mushy grace. Isn't that just like the devil who would take something so gloriously beautiful and turn it into something that's ruinous? Gang, I'm, I'm not sure I'm right about this part. But the grace that I hear trumpeted in many circles is not something worthy of the God who is depicted and described in this book. my brother and sister in Christ. Be sober. Be vigilant. Our Father, I I have done this so that because of my concern about the safety of the souls of people I love, would you use it for that purpose and that purpose only? Would you Would you allow these thoughts to so trickle down into the souls of every every believer that we might no longer play fast and loose with rules, with commandments, with statutes, with testimonies? Might we find ourselves, once we have discovered the great beauty of the God who saved us, might we find ourselves falling in love also with his law. Not because that obedience earns us anything, but that that obedience is an expression of a newfound beauty. Lord, um, would you awaken your church to uh, live in such a way that we rightly and properly represent you? Do that for the glory of Christ and his church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.